Are you getting angry at me? I can't control this. I was like, I got a new podcast. I don't know. And he's like, okay, good luck with that. You are listening to the Keeping It Juicy podcast. Your main squeeze in nutrition. Don't forget to subscribe and click the bell icon on YouTube so you can get notified every Tuesday when we upload a new episode. You can also add us on Facebook and Instagram at Keeping It Juicy Podcast. (laughs) Okay, everybody, welcome to episode 51. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about complementary nutrition therapies. Uh, But before we get into that, um, as we mentioned in our last episode, December is going to be a month-long giveaway month, so we are finally announcing Mm -hmm. our first giveaway of December. So this is the tote bag that we will be giving away. It was made by Laura V, the RD, and this giveaway is going to be open from Tuesday, December 3rd, which is today when the episode is launching. It will be closing on Saturday, December 7th. Uh, Keep an eye out for the Instagram post that will give the the times and more details about how to enter. But the rule is you do have to be subscribed to our YouTube. Tag a friend in the comments of the Instagram post that you think would like to win too. Uh, More comments equal more entries. So please one tag per comment just so we can like track it a little bit easier. If you want to tag 10 friends per comment, that's fine. But that only counts as one if that makes sense. To do it separately. And also, I feel like you should do the disclaimer for me. So we do have a a disclaimer before we jump into this episode. Um, Our co-host is very sick right now and has lost her voice. So we are going to try our best, but please be patient. (laughs) This will not be the most... uh, stellar audio listen um nor are our episodes ever but today's going to be incredibly worse <laughs> oh god don't say that so i don't know um but just because the audio is terrible doesn't mean that the information is not <laughs> correct so with that being said before we go into the bulk of, of the episode our new nutrition in the news is something a little bit different. It did just come out recently. And the name of the article, which we'll attach in the show notes, is called Little Known Protein Appears to Play an Important Role in Obesity and Metabolic Disease. So strap on because this is a little bit <laughs> this is a little bit lengthy. So this this particular research was con- was conducted by the Scripps Research Facility, and they basically investigated a signaling protein, also known as PGRMC2. This particular protein was actually not really researched or studied in the past, so it's also short for, for progesterone receptor membrane component 2. It has been detected in the uterus, liver, and several areas of the body. So within this lab, they saw that this particular protein was particularly abundant in brown tissue 
which we're starting to find a trend of brown of brown tissue, brown fat come back. So um, basically what brown fat does is it turns food into heat in order to help maintain that body temperature. And they they decided to see what more does it do than just that. So basically they built a recent discovery on the fact that this particular protein binds to and releases to an essential molecule, which is also known as heme. So this iron containing molecule travels within cells to enable crucial life processes such as cellular respiration, cell proliferation, cell death, and circadian rhythm. So with this in mind, they sought to find out what happens in the body if this particular protein didn't exist to transport that heme. So with that being in mind, um, they realized that without this protein present in their fat tissues, mice that were fed a high-fat diet became intolerant to glucose and insensitive to insulin. So these are hallmark symptoms of diabetes and other metabolic diseases. So by contract, obese diabetic mice that were treated with a drug to activate that showed a substantial improvement of symptoms associated with diabetes. So obviously you can tell the difference between the protein being present and it not being present. So that, with that being said, they also looked at the brown fat and they realized um, it turned white. So brown fat, which is usually the highest in heme content, is often considered the good fat. So one of its key roles is to generate heat, obviously, like we talked about, to maintain that body temperature. So among the mice that were unable to produce that protein in their fat tissue, the temperatures dropped quickly, which when they were placed in cold environments. So basically, the brown fat turned to white. So now they're just further trying to understand the protein's role in other tissues to understand um, what defects in transporting heme would cause. So I thought this was a really interesting study because obviously this is really new and it could definitely help explain a lot of the things that we see with our patients and people in general. Mm -hmm. No, it's definitely very interesting. And there's still so much about like brown fat that we don't fully mm -hmm. understand. And it's a very, you know, why do some of us have more of it than others? It's just, it's interesting. And now we're seeing that there are other molecules that it interacts with that can cause different metabolic outcomes as well. And it's also like, why do some people get metabolic diseases so much more aggressively than some other people, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting. Let us know your guys' thoughts. I just, mm -hmm. and that kind of like blew my mind reading through it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So now we're going to dive into the main part of our episode, which is complementary nutrition therapies. If you're not familiar with this, um, I wasn't either. Uh, it's basically just an entire topic that explains different ways to treat nutrition-related problems with things other than like your traditional medications. So 
it's a very debated topic. Um, we're not going to go over specifics. If you are interested in that, please let us know and we can talk more about, you know, what sort of complementary nutrition therapies are good for mental disorders, what sort of therapies are good for diabetes. We're not going to talk about like specific diseases today. We're just going to talk about the topic in general, some of the history of it, some of the concerns. And we're going to touch on how supplements are regulated as well, which is a major concern as well. Um, but first, we're going to dive into the actual definition of it. So the NCCIH has classified complementary health approaches into two main categories, which are natural products and then mind-body practices. Natural products do include herbs or botanicals, vitamins, minerals, probiotics, which are all widely sold as dietary supplements. We've talked about a lot of these in the past. Mind and body practices include a large and diverse group of procedures or techniques administered or taught by a trained professional or teacher. Think of things like yoga, cryopractic, and osteopathic manipulation, meditation. And according to the uh, 2012 NIH survey, these were the most popular mind and body practices used by adults. There are many, many more, but the ones I just mentioned were the most common. Uh, other mind-body practices include acupuncture, relaxation techniques, tai chi, qigong, <laughs> probably butchering that so badly, hypnotherapy, uh, Pilates as well, structural integration, and Traeger psychophysical integration. And then there are other uh, complementary approaches outside of these two categories, and this includes traditional healers. So from here, we move on to the tr traditional healers. And one of them is the Ayurvedic medicine, and that is a traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy, naturopathy, and functional medicine. So in a systemic review of the research literature across the globe, the data actually demonstrated that there was an increase of complementary and alternative therapies used from 1990 through 2006 in all the countries that were investigated. So the data also demonstrated that chiropractic manipulation, herbal medicine, massage, and homeopathy were the therapies most commonly used by the general population with the higher utilization of homeopathy and acupuncture in German-speaking countries. Interesting, but fun to know. See, <laughs> they also identified sex, age, and education as predictors of alternative therapy utilization. More users were women, middle age, and more educated, which obviously explains a lot. I believe privilege has a little bit of play in here. And then the ailments most often associated with these, therapy, these therapies in the review included back pain or pathology, depression, insomnia, severe headache or migraine, and stomach or intestinal illnesses, which is interesting. All right. Sounds like a lot of the problems that uh, older women I know have. <laughs> oh, man. So according to key findings from the most recent National Health in Interview Survey in 2012 conducted by the NIH, a little bit over a third of U.S. adults use complementary health approaches and 11.16% of U.S. children 
aged four to 17 use complementary health approaches. That's a pretty, you know, big, big number. Uh, pain is a condition for which people often use complementary health approaches, and it is common in US adults. More than half had some pain during the first three months before the survey. So there's a very strong correlation between having pain of some sort and choosing to participate in a complementary health approach. Um, the most commonly used complementary health approach used was natural products, natural. So of complementary health product users, 17.7% uh, of adults used natural products, 4.9% of children aged four to 17 used this natural product category. I bet you a hundred bucks. It was like teenage boys, like trying to grow. You know, that's that's crazy. Four to seventeen. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm so, with that being said, what are the concerns for this? So, according to a statistic, only thirty-three percent of patients who use herbs or supplements discuss usage with their physician which is very common. I feel like I feel like the number is higher than that. And then there was an AARP survey of people age 50 and over that found that 58% of those who reported using um, this therapy said that they have discussed them with the healthcare provider. You still have that 42% gap. Another statistic says that nearly one in five Americans in 2011 reported using an herb and more than half did not disclose the use of it to a medical professional. So we're gonna give an example of how this can be really, really problematic. So let's say we have a 70 year old woman with chronic atrial fibrillation. So basically fast erratic heartbeat, she's taking warfarin to reduce the risk of a stroke, and she's also taking several medications to control high blood pressure. Right, so let's just say the anticoagulant team that's caring for her is following a regimen that thins the blood just enough but not too much. If for some reason this client started taking a supplement that she didn't want to mention to her doctor, several things could happen. The supplement could actually stimulate the liver to metabolize warfarin more effectively so that she would end up with inappropriate low levels and risk a blood clot. Or controversially, controversially, the supplement could increase the anticoagulant effect of the warfarin excessively and boost bleeding. Neither of these are good. A lot of herbal supplements have interactions with medications, and many things can happen, especially if you're taking multiple medications. And many people think that supplements aren't really medicine since they don't require a prescription. Um, but if team members fail to ask these clients if there have been any changes in their pills or supplements that she uses, they may adjust their dose without understanding what's actually happening. Uh, then if the client chooses to stop the supplement, which they never told their doctors about <laughs> from the get-go, the effect of the interaction goes away and the dose needs to be adjusted again. But let's just go back to our example client, for example, her warfarin levels will bounce around, but the team will have no idea why. So that's why it's so important to tell your doctors or your, any healthcare professional you're talking to about anything, any supplements you're taking, any herbs you're taking, even like teas, like 
they all have interactions. So with that being said, there are other concerns. So use of alternative medicine in lieu of conventional cancer treatment is an example of these concerns. So a recent study by the researchers at the Yale School of Medicine, uh, they were looking at 281 patients with potentially curable cancers of the breast, lung, colon, rectum, or prostate that had not yet spread beyond the site of origin. They found that the use of alternative medicine in lieu of conventional cancer treatments resulted in overall death rates two to a half times higher than the rate experienced by patients getting the standard therapies. So among women with breast cancer, choosing alternative remedies resulted in a nearly six-fold increase in the chance of dying during an average follow-up period of five and a half years. So... And for patients with um, colon or rectal cancer who chose alternative treatments, the, de the death rate was four and a half times higher. And those with lung cancer, the death rate was twice as high. So it has been shown that, you know, there is an amount of small but a significant amount of cancer patients who reject the mainstream therapies and use alternative remedies that lack scientific support instead. So let's talk about why. Um, a possible explanation is that people feel empowered because they're in control and they want to avoid the toxic effects of standard therapies or, you know, other reasons as well. But I think that's a big one. You know, a lot of times people like to feel in control of their health outcomes. But unfortunately, a lot of these therapies don't have the scientific support quite yet. The studies we found actually didn't have support. Um, the point was made by the researchers that alternative medicine, which they defined as an unproven therapy that was given in place of a conventional treatment, is not the same as complementary or integrative treatments, which are used as additions or complements of standard care. So that's important. It's the key word is in addition to instead of in place of conventional treatments. It is important that patients disclose their inclination to take unconventional therapies and work with their doctor. I do wanna add on um, one more piece that a lot of times patients might not feel comfortable sharing with their doctor um, unconventional treatments because they might feel like they'll get either judged for their thoughts on unconventional treatments or they're afraid that their doctor won't be educated about it but I do want to point out like just because a health professional doesn't have the information like at the forefront of their brain doesn't mean they can't find it and doesn't mean that they can't talk to a team or another person who does so just think about that right exactly um I mean in my job right now we have to we always ask our patients do you take any non-prescribed herbal supplements, vitamins, minerals? And like, I came across someone taking CBD oil, like black black seed oil, and like um, over-the-counter um, multivitamins, all of which is very important in the world of dialysis. So I can only imagine how important it is in other healthcare aspects. So with that being said, let's talk about the regulation of supplements. It's important to define 
in them and it's important to review this regulation and safety. So basically the regulation of dietary supplements and labeling rights is under the purview of the U.S. Food and Drug Association, also known as the FDA, which is governed by the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. So DSHEA of 1994. So the publicized aim of DSHEA was to facilitate more proactive health strategies among Americans while saving billions in healthcare costs. An Office of Dietary Supplements, ODS, in the, in the NIH was also created as a result of this year. So with the, they put together a mandate to coordinate scientific research relating to these dietary supplements and to advise federal agencies on issues relating to supplements. Dietary supplements were defined and labeling on the front panel were required as being an intended dietary supplement. So whatever the oral form, the Shia places dietary supplements in a special category under the general under the general umbrella of foods and not drugs, which as you can see is slightly problematic. Yeah, it's actually very problematic. The issue is that most components responsible for the effects of most herbs have not been identified or clearly defined because there are no um, decreased barriers to access any dietary supplements and testing for safety and efficacy is not mandated. That's very important. Many herbal supplements have no set standard for amounts or doses. A lot of people think, oh, I bought it at a supplement shop. It must be safe for me. You realize that's a business, right? Like that's a retail shop, right? So throwing that out there. So let's look at the specifics of supplement regu regulation as this is extremely important to the safety and quality of products on the market. So according to the FDA, this is from their website, supplement manufacturers are responsible for evaluating the safety and the labeling of their products before, before, before. 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 <laughs> before marketing to ensure that they meet all of the requirements of DASHA and FDA regulations. And the FDA has the responsibility of taking action if manufacturers don't comply with their responsibility. I want to emphasize before. <laughs> before. Um, if that wasn't obvious. So the point is that supplement manufacturers, companies, whatever, are responsible for testing the safety before they market. This, I'm telling you this right now, this does not always happen. Like, they they really don't test it as well as they need to and should, and that's why there are so many problems with supplements out there, and there's so many interactions Look how long it took for them to actually get ephedra off the market. That had so many deaths associated with it. Granted, people, you know, took a lot. <laughs> but once a supplement has been shown to be unsafe, then the FDA will start to look into it. If there's enough complaints, because who complains to the FDA? Like, I don't even know where I would go if I needed to complain to the FDA. So, like, once there have been enough complaints then the FDA will investigate, but nothing happens prior. So just keep that in mind. Um, but the thing with that is like, 
like people in the United States want the FDA to take more action, but then there's other people that are like, no, you're going to disrupt our business. So you have those businesses lobbying against the FDA's ability to actually do their job. That's why our supplement regulation is shit compared to Europe. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, politics entwined in this. So even though herbs have some similar effects to some drugs, uh, they are marketed as foods under Daisha. Like other dietary supplements, botanicals are not required by federal law to be tested for safety and effectiveness before they are marketed. So the amount of scientific evidence available for various botanical ingredients varies extremely widely. So the components responsible for the effect of most herbs have not yet been identified or clearly defined. So, so because there are decreased barriers to access of any dietary supplements and testing for the safety and efficacy is not mandated, many herbal supplements have no set standards for amounts and dosages. So like I have had patients ask me, well, how much of this should I take? I'm like, I, there's not enough research for me to say anything. Um, and then there's a lack of product consistency, which makes the delivery of an effective dosage difficult, as mentioned previously. So for example, a variation in ginseng's active ingredient has been reported to be 15 to 200 fold. But also the natural combination of chemicals you get when eating the actual herb may have a synergistic effect, may have a synergistic effect that may be absent in that of a supplement. So botanicals may also be contaminated with chemicals or heavy metals, particularly those that are imported from the third world. I've even heard reports of rat poison being put in it. I mean, maybe not so much now, but definitely way back when. Yeah, you just, you really don't know what you're getting. And that's the scary part with supplements. So aside from the whole safety, contamination, standardization thing, the most important thing to know is that if botanicals are taken alongside with medications, there may be very dangerous interactions. So if, you know, rat poisoning wasn't enough for you, <laughs> there might be some uh, drug interactions going on as well. Taking a prescription drug and a supplement together may increase the drug's effects, and the drug's effects may become augmented or become too strong or too weak which will give unwanted side effects, which will confuse your medical team. And <laughs> you probably, you might not get better or you might have poor health outcomes. So just tell people what you're taking. Uh, the NIH has information regarding supplement concerns, as well as information geared to the public regarding supplement interactions with medication. We will leave a link in the show notes of a good resource to um, go for this. So despite the danger with drug interaction, 72% of those who use herbs also use medications, and 84% of those who use herbs also use an over-the-counter medication. Um, as discussed, we do need to ask about the use of herbs and botanicals, and if our patients are using them, and if we need to get details on the dosage, frequency, and potentially look up you know, side effects and interactions if we're not familiar with it. And most importantly, get the details and discuss with clients, you know, what to do to get the best health outcomes.
also definitely consult your physician as well. So with that being said, um, if this episode wasn't enough to scare you shitless of <laughs> herbal supplements, or at least get you thinking a little bit more before you buy that particular herbal supplement, I hope this episode opened your eye. Um, and please let us know any information or anything else that you want to contribute or your thoughts or feelings. And also, if you want us to do an episode more specifically on common herbal supplements taken and why people take them. Right. You know, we're not here to bash supplements and say none of them work. There is some research that does support some health outcomes when you take a supplement or herbal product in addition to a traditional therapy. So if you want more of those specific um, examples, let us know. And we can definitely uh, put an episode together for you. I definitely want to go over ephedra because I feel like not a lot of people know about that. And I only knew about that because of my... um, I think it was my weight loss, weight maintenance class that I took um, as part of my master's. And right now, I'll I'll just throw in at the end, I'm doing a project for one of my classes. And it actually, my assignment was to look at natural products in conjunction to conventional therapies for diabetes, type 2 specifically. And there... The the therapies I'm looking into specifically are cinnamon and fenugreek. And when you take those herbs and spices in addition to, you know, your traditional diabetes prescriptions and procedures, this research shows that there is slightly better health outcomes. But all of the studies prescribe a balanced diet and an exercise program. Who wants to do that? Just kidding. <laughs> do the cinnamon challenge instead. Dude, that shit is no joke. <laughs> I died. With that being said, we do want to close the episode out with the social media shout out. And this week it goes to Megan underscore Renee. So Megan with two A's. Um, She is a registered dietitian and she's currently in Colorado. And I noticed that she had previously competed in a bikini competition and she, which is awesome. And she's definitely taking clients. I do appreciate you just, um, just liking our pictures, supporting us, just tuning in. Yeah, we definitely see it. We appreciate it. So thank you. So this is the tote bag that we will be giving away. It was made by Laura V, the RD. So if you don't win, you can definitely get one of your own. But it's it's like super good quality. Like it almost feels insulated. So it's not just like basic fabric. Like there's a lot of structure to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can hear that. But yes, going back to the giveaway, make sure you're subscribed to our YouTube You tag uh, as many friends as you want in the comments below the Instagram post. It will be open until Saturday, December 7th, but keep an eye out for what time and time zone. We haven't gotten that far yet. So thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode and good luck to whoever wins. (laughs) Yes, thank you. And we will catch you in the next one. Bye guys. Hopefully my voice isn't shit. Bye guys.
Thanks for listening to the Keeping It Juicy podcast. Your main squeeze in nutrition. Don't forget to subscribe so you can join us every Tuesday for a brand new episode. Also, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Keeping It Juicy Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Five stars, no less. On whatever platform you're listening to, or send us an email at keepingitjuicypodcast at gmail.com. Or if you have any topics you'd like for us to touch upon, shoot us an email. Until next time, don't do anything that I wouldn't do. This is what I do when Christina's in here. Oh, there it is. Oh.